On this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, I talk about the life of Chevalier Ernest Thorne, one of the greatest European illusionists of all time. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is the home for magic history. The Magic Detective is a blog and a podcast. The blog can be found at themagicdetective.com, and the podcast, well, you're listening to it, so... um you should have already found it. Uh, if you're looking for it, though, on the internet, it's at magicdetectivepodcast.com. And uh, we are into the new year, 2020, the new decade, if you will. And even though uh, I kind of count my years from when I started the podcast, so it's from October to October, I still thought I would go over some of the podcasts from 2019 that stand out. Uh, the most listened to episode of 2019, at least currently, is episode 23, the T. Nelson Downs episode, also one of my favorites. Another episode I'm quite proud of is episode 24 on Daisy White, and this is really a Houdini episode because uh, she and Houdini were so tied together, and there's quite a bit of revelation on that episode, so if you're into Houdini, I think you really enjoy the Daisy White episode. Uh, another one that really got a lot of attention was episode 31, the the uh, Decolta podcast, very popular. And as far as the episodes that received the most likes, that would be episode 35, Houdini's Milk Can Escape, and episode 36, in Houdini's Own Words. So <laughs> now as far as the likes, um, on average, the episodes get two or three likes and, um, some of them get more, but two or three likes. And I know that not everybody is liking the episodes as far as when I say that, I mean, like, as far as hitting a button that has a heart or a thumbs up sign or something like that. Not that you don't personally like the episodes. It's just that it's a internet term like, uh, I, I know people aren't doing it for whatever reason. Maybe you're, you're listening on a on a phone or something, and you don't have access to that button. I don't know. Uh, but I do know that well over 100 people are listening uh, to the podcast. So, uh, and they keep listening, keep coming back for more. And I get tons of emails from people that say how much they enjoy the podcast. So thank you for those emails. I really do appreciate it. It's nice to know that people appreciate the content. And um, hey, and if you have a chance, you can always go back and like an episode. You can do that too. I've would be very grateful for that as well. So that brings us to today, the first podcast of 2020. And the man I'm going to talk about today is one that I really knew virtually nothing about. I'd stumble upon his name here and there, but I really, I really didn't know anything about him. He was considered one of the greatest magicians of his day, and yet he's virtually unknown to us today. Um, and I remember saying these exact same words about a few other magicians. Robert Heller comes to mind, as does the great Morrow and others. Uh, hey, they were famous in their day. Today they're forgotten. Yeah, and here's another one. Today's podcast is about one of the most popular European illusionists of his day, Chevalier Ernest Thorne. I will be referring to him as Ernest Thorne during most of the podcast. Now, to give you an idea of his fame, listen to this. 
from a September 1927 article in Billboard magazine. And yes, it's that Billboard magazine, which today only covers music, but in the 1920s, they actually had a section devoted to magicians. Here's what it says. Chevalier Ernest Thorne occupies the place in the affection of European lovers of magic that Alexander Herman held in the esteem of Americans. Like Herman the Great, Chevalier Thorne's name and fame are household words in his native land, and his enviable reputation is worldwide. He was born September 23, 1853, in the Kingdom of Galicia. I didn't even know there was a kingdom of Galicia. Apparently it was part of Austria and today is part of Poland and Ukraine. His birth name was Moses Abraham Thorne. I'm not really sure where Ernest came from, but it's beside the point. Uh, Now his introduction into magic is captured in an article that he himself wrote. So here is what he had to say. At the age of 12 was the first time in my life that I saw a magician. He was the well-known Professor St. Roman. The impression that I received as a child was to remain in my memory for a long time. I can see now the beautiful red velvet hangings with the sun, moon, and stars thereon and the blazing array of apparatus on the stage. The hall was packed and in my ears came the wonderful music. My undivided attention followed him through his great tricks, and I became so enchanted that I missed school and followed the magician into the next town, only to be mystified again. I must confess that at first I only desired to understand how he accomplished his wonders, and did not know that it was to become in me my leading desire to do them. Had a house fallen on my head, it would not have seemed so heavy. At this point, young Thorne purchased some magic apparatus and began to study and perform, mostly for friends, schoolmates, and family. Eventually, an opportunity arose when he heard the greatest magician of the time needed an assistant, so he applied for the job, and he got it. The man's name was Henry Smith Cagliostro. I imagine it was his advertisements that said he was the greatest magician of the time because reality would prove otherwise. Young Thorne went to work for Cagliostro doing just about every job, from lining up gigs to putting up posters to selling tickets, and then he found out that Cagliostro was a terrible stage magician. He was accustomed to working with a small table and being among the audience, so it's likely he was a close-up style magician, maybe ahead of his time. But once he hit the stage, he was completely lost. For Thorne, it was time to move on. Eventually, he went to work assisting another performer, who actually was rather famous. His name was Bellicini. Thorne stayed with Bellicini for several years before going out on his own. In 1879, the time came for Thorne to venture out with his own show, He had the good fortune of having traveled all over Europe, and he knew his way around rather well. 
In his short autobiography that appeared in the Linking Ring magazine, October 1924, he tells of performing before the Sultan in Constantinople. He wanted to present Decolta's Vanishing Lady Illusion, but a specially placed Persian rug on the stage would prevent his ability to complete the illusion. By the way, the rug was also nailed to the floor, adding to the difficulty. As strange as it sounds, Thorne was able to get special permission to present the illusion. As I've said before, I don't reveal magic secrets, but I can tell you he didn't remove the Persian rug. Figure that one out. During his tour of the world, he partnered with his brother Henry. About midway through the tour, Henry became part of the show, adopting the name Darwin. The two brothers began to perform as Thorne and Darwin, the royal illusionists. One particular stop on their tour would prove to be life-changing. They gave a command performance before King Norodome I of Cambodia. The king was so pleased with the performance that following, he knighted Ernest. This is where the name Chevalier Ernest Thorne comes from. The word Chevalier is the French term for knight. I suppose it's the equivalent of the British using sir before uh, their people that are knighted. According to an article in the July 1929 Linking Ring, their trip wasn't all sunshine and roses. It reads, The voyage was to be continued to Hong Kong. For this purpose, he went on board the SS Flintshire, hardly had the steamer put to sea again an unheard typhoon burst forth, and the ship arrived first on the seventh day near the port of Hong Kong. It has to pass the 14 miles long coral reef, the Scarborough Shoal, before coming to Hong Kong. What horror when the steamer again was aground at this reef. Four days and four nights, superhuman efforts were made to set the ship afloat again, but vainly, and all the time, no vessel passed during this disastrous place. In that dreadful situation, 21 of the passengers were willing to go on a boat and row to the coast and look out for any help for the ship and its passengers. Thorne and his brother were among the volunteers. The sea getting very rough again, the boat was not able to ply to the coast. On the contrary, by the hurricane, it was driven into the open sea, where it strayed for seven days and seven nights. By penetrating water, the boat got overloaded and sunk to the brim and had to be perpetually scooped and emptied by all means possible. To increase the horror, on the second day, a big shark appeared behind the boat and followed it day and night. By using a broken oar, the beast had to be kept at a distance without interruption to avert its continuous attacks. On the sixth day, one of the passengers succeeded in striking it in the jaw so heavily that it bled to death and sunk. After a week of hopeless floating, the boat reached the coast of Manila on the Philippine Islands. The Naval Observatory had discovered it, but a fog of such denseness was spread along the coast that the, the, the lifeboat could not come near the boat itself, and missing the direction again and again. In the meantime, the boat drove itself to the coast and the poor half-dead shipwrecked crew were put in a place of safety. All of them were entirely lame from the endured cold, excitement, and starving, and no one was able to walk. Person by person had to be carried to land. Having left their passports on the Flintshire, the poor fellows were not allowed to stay longer in Manila than was necessary for their recovery. They were brought to the SS Flintshire, which was still aground and immovable on the reef by a Spanish steamer. 
The mentioned steamer succeeded in making the disastrous ship afloat, and at last, after a tiresome voyage of three and a half days, the port was reached. But Thorne lost all of his baggage, possessing nothing but the suit on his body. No mention in the article uh, about the props from the show, so either they were lost also uh, and easily replaced, or they were salvaged, I don't know. Uh, Thorne was able to find replacement clothes in order to perform at the Chinese Imperial Theater in Hong Kong. One of the clever illusions that is mentioned from time to time that Thorne created, he would display a satchel and remove various articles of clothing from the satchel. Then he would stuff them with straw, kind of a makeshift scarecrow, and instantly the straw people would come to life and actually assist throughout the rest of the show. It's a clever way to introduce your assistance. In March of 1879, they were in Sydney, Australia. Among the many accolades they received for their show, it also turns out that Ernest Thorne was the first person ever to present the vanishing bird in cage on the continent. He referred to it as his original flying cage and would often feature it in the advertisements for their show. Of course, this was Dakota's vanishing bird cage, which was all the rage. By the end of 1879, they found their way to the United States. There is an article from the Oregonian newspaper, December 30, 1879, which describes their act nicely. The illusionists, Thorne and Darwin, made their appearance last evening to what should have been a larger audience. Their performance is exceedingly clever and entertaining, especially the hour spent with Chevalier Thorne in his Hour in Dreamland. His manipulations of the cards was the best we have ever seen here, and in this he was not surpassed by the late Robert Heller. The goldfish trick, which was given here by Herman some years ago, lost none of its attraction last night, to judge that by the delight of the audience expressed. The most marvelous act, and one which was encored by the audience, was the flying birdcage. It was the most wonderful achievement ever accomplished on this stage and puts into the shade the best trick that has ever been presented by any previous professor of the black art who has visited here. Their spiritual manifestations were, however, the chief attraction of the evening, their cabinets of seances being exceedingly clever and at the same time most mystifying to the audience. Messieurs Thorne and Darwin, having been securely tied by stout ropes by a committee of prominent gentlemen, immediately after the cabinet being closed, hands are seen to appear through the various apertures, bells ring, tambourines play, and a discordant jangling of various instruments, which must have been the work of many hands. In a twinkling, however, the cabinet is opened and the supposed mediums are securely tied, leaving the committee and the audience perplexed as to how things can be. Now, if I might backtrack just one month before the brothers reached the mainland, they were in Hawaii. On November 15, 1879, the Pacific Commercial Advertiser newspaper records a review of their show, which, like the previous one, was glowing, but it also included something that I found quite interesting. Now, the year is 1879. Mr. Thorne was challenged by a gentleman to be tied up in a manner that he would not be able to free himself. The princely sum of $50 was added to make the challenge even more exciting. A gentleman by the name of Mr. Douglas proceeded to tie up 
Ernest Thorne in a way that seemed merciless by much of the audience. It took a full 12 minutes to get completely tied. When Douglas was happy with the completed ties, he let Thorne attempt the escape. Ernest Thorne began to twist and wiggle his body, and by the four-minute mark was free, and the paper said, to thunderous applause. David Price's book, Magic, A Pictorial History of Conjurers in the Theater, said that the brothers toured America for the next six or seven years. In 1886, Ernest Thorne chose to return to Europe, while his brother Henry, who had been performing as Darwin, chose to remain in America. He stayed here, became a, a citizen, and eventually married and had a family. Once Ernest Thorne returned to Europe, he began to tour again. His part of the act, when he worked with his brother, was called An Hour in Dreamland. He often still used this title, but it would seem over time his show was simply called Dreamland. And what a dreamland it was. Prior to returning to Europe, it would appear that his, his part of the show was made up of smaller stage tricks, like the Chinese rings, the vanishing birdcage, the flying handkerchiefs, the coffee vase, the inexhaustible decanter, and of course we know he had the Dakota vanishing lady. Chevalier Thorne really becomes an illusionist once he returns to Europe, and many of the illusions were his own creations. Some of his illusions have very interesting names, rather than calling a trick the Vanishing Lady, for example. He may have had something more exotic, like the Dream of the Caliph. This particular illusion is the precursor to Charles Moritz Flito. Actually, by appearances, it appears that Moritz stole the idea from Thorne and made only minor changes. Maybe th stole is a too harsh a word, as Charles Moritz, too, was an amazing inventor of illusions. He was featured on Podcast 39, but there is no question the two illusions are almost identical. Another illusion of Thorne's that caught my eye was called the sarcophagus. And for the curious, you may know this illusion as the mummy case. It's featured in the book The Great Illusions of Magic by Byron Wells, though there is no mention of Thorne in the description in the book. In fact, one flaw that I find with that book is that there's no historical reference to the various illusions. It would, would have been so much better to have a little bit of historical context. To my surprise, the graphic design on the front of Thorne's illusions was pretty faithfully continued in later versions. I had no idea that this was Thorne's creation. In the effect, a large sarcophagus is displayed. The door is opened, revealing another door with another image of a mummy. This door is opened so that the mummy itself can be removed. Once it is removed, the back doors of the sarcophagus are opened, showing it completely empty. The mummy figure is then placed back inside. All the doors are closed. Likely back in the day of Chevalier Thorne, he would have shot a starter pistol. This was a common practice rather than saying a magic word. And then the doors would be open to the sarcophagus and out would walk an Egyptian princess. The year 1896 is significant because it's the year that Ernest Thorne leaves the stage and takes a position as a manager of all the music halls in Budapest. An event is taking place called the Millennium Exhibition. His tenure as manager nearly wiped out all of his savings. It was not a profitable venture, nor a good move. 
I know that Thorne married his wife Julia in the 1890s, so this was perhaps an attempt to settle down and get off the road, but it failed badly. His next venture was investing in a music hall in the town of Lemberg. This also turned out to be a disaster for Thorne. But Thorne's loss was our gain because he returned to the stage in the early 1900s and once again set out as an illusionist. Again, David Price's book Magic mentions that he either presented his Dreamland show or a shorter 20-minute vaudeville-style act where he did six illusions in that short period of time. That's a lot of work and a lot of props for 20 minutes. Our next Thorn illusion, which can be found in the pages of The Great Illusions of Magic by Byron Wells, is the Noah's Ark illusion. This was a large, horizontal-shaped cabinet. Actually, had somewhat of a boat-like look to it, thus the name Noah's Ark. The cabinet first was shown to be completely empty, and then its doors all closed up. In the front doors of the Ark, there are cutouts that allow the magician to reach inside the cabinet without having to open the doors themselves. And each time he reaches inside, he removes another animal. Ducks, geese, rabbits, chickens, an entire barnyard of animals is produced from the previously empty cabinet. And then, for the finale, a woman is produced from the cabinet. In 1904, according to Mahatma Magazine, Thornton begins to work with Tommy Downs on some illusions for his show. Among these gems is this, the effect of which is the instantaneous disappearance of a lady suspended in a hammock from a table. The table, hammock, and the lady vanish together in full view of the audience. The illusion does not depend upon the use of mirrors, cabinets, glass, traps in the stage, or back curtains. Downs and Thorne had the illusion patented, and the patent papers appeared in the Magician's Annual in 1908. The illusion was also featured in Thorne's show and was known as Atavar. To hear more about Thorne's work with Downs, you can listen to Podcast 23 on the life of T. Nelson Downs. We can thank Odakar Fisher for saving this next mystery. In Ernest Thorne's show, it's called The Fakir of Travancore. It was also called The Mystery of Travancore. That title would give you no clue as to what the illusion involved. I found the illusion described in the pages of Fisher's Illustrated Magic. And this book, for the unfamiliar, is chocked full of forgotten secrets. My dear friend Denny Haney first turned me on to this book years ago. Okay, so from the uh, pages of Illustrated Magic, we find this. Among the transformation illusions is the one produced under the title 123. The proceeding is as follows. One of the performer's assistants is laid on a sort of flat bench and fastened to it with straps whose ends are secured by padlocks which the spectators themselves may lock. The bench with the man fastened to it is now lifted onto a platform about 18 inches high, underneath which there is an unobstructed view. A curtain is surrounding the platform is let down for a period of three seconds. While the conjurer counts one, two, three, when the curtain goes up, the male assistant has disappeared from under the straps and in his place is a girl. In order to release the girl, the padlocks must be opened and the straps unbuckled, which requires several minutes. The male assistant has vanished without a trace. Now, if you paid close attention to that description, 
what we have here is a horizontal version of Harbin's assistance revenge. The only difference is a person vanishes, but the effect is very similar and likely the inspiration for that later illusion. There were many other illusions as well. I discovered a beautiful poster for an illusion called the Pagoda Mystery. It depicts a person inside an open trunk and two people surrounding another trunk, which is closed. I believe this is Thorne's double box change mystery, which is mentioned briefly in an issue of Stanion's Magic. No description is given, but either a person or two exchange places or the boxes and the people change places, which would be more interesting. Then we have these titles, Cagliostro's Bookcase, The Devil's Cage, The Duped Spiritualist, Rapid Transit, Karma Sutra from Benares, The Floating Yogi, Khalifa Baghdad, and more. Try as I might, I've not been able to decipher what all of these illusions were, but if the previous illusions I've described are any indication, then these additional mysteries are likely to be equally as breathtaking. There is a very large three-sheet poster simply titled Dreamland that depicts the Adivar illusion, the mystery of Travancore, and quite a few other illusions as well, but I'm not clear on what they do or which one is which. They all certainly look very magical. Several places have pointed out that Ernest Thorne was insanely jealous of his wife and wouldn't let anyone speak to her. Even when the Sphinx magazine wanted to feature his wife, Thorne sent them a photo, but would not include any biographical information. So they put her picture on the cover and wrote the briefest of bios inside. Sadly, Julia Thorne passed away unexpected at the age of 50 in 1919. Thorne was devastated and began to slow down. He apparently lost quite a bit of money in the German financial crisis of 1922. David Price's book Magic says that Thorne lived out his final days in abject poverty, but an article in the Sphinx contradicted that and said he was living his last days in comfort. What we do know is he sold off his show, The Illusions and All the Show Properties, to another magician, Alios Kastner, and Thorne also gradually sold off his enormous antique collection. Moses Abraham Ernest Thorne died in Leipzig, Germany on May 21, 1928. He was 74 years old when he passed away. Price's book notes that after Thorne had died, a cushion belonging to his wife was discovered to have all of her jewels sewn inside. Had they been sold off during his lifetime, Chevalier Thorne's final years may have been a bit brighter. That is an amazing story. I had no idea this fellow was such an amazing inventor of illusions, and I truly hope that eventually I can find out what all these other illusions are and what they do and even how they work. It, it truly sounds like a treasure trove of lost illusions just waiting to be brought back to modern audiences. Ah, this guy was amazing. And that, my friends, will do it for episode 41 of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. If you listen via iTunes, please consider giving me a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Have a great week and be well.